Today's scripture comes from Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. Well, good morning. As you're being seated, let's pray. God, we thank you for the privilege we have to look at this wonderful and beautiful text. We thank you that you are the God who has appeared. So, Lord, give us clarity, give us understanding, and, and, and increase the, the fire and the passion that we have for you in this season to, to be zealous for good works. So in this we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Heath. Uh, I'm also part of the team here at Christ City, and it is my joy to be here. If you're new, if you're visiting, I would love to add my welcome to Jake's. Um, for those of you who have been with us for a while, you're thinking, okay, that wasn't, you know, 1 Corinthians. So just to, as a, a point of reminder, uh, we have not stopped our series in 1 Corinthians. We have paused it until the new year. So we, were, we will spend some time focusing on Advent in this text of Titus chapter 2. Now, for some of you, I'm sure the, the season has snuck up on you. Like, like for me, it's your horror, maybe. You're like, oh, no, I'm not ready for this. Uh, others of you are like, okay, yeah, and you've had your Christmas tree and decorations up since, you know, Halloween. But that's okay. You see, I usually struggle this time at Christmas. Now, there's a joke kind of going around that I look like a garden gnome, maybe even Santa Claus. But the reality is... I, I'm not wearing a red hat right now, otherwise I would be a garden gnome, but, the, but I'm more like the Grinch. And I've had to really grapple with that in the last few years. But this year, I'm not sure why, I've had a bit of an epiphany of sorts. And as I've been thinking of this text in Titus, excited about it, uh, I've had some clarity in my dissonance and my disconnect and dis, you know, just whatever other dis word I can add into that. I, I'm, really, I'm really excited about this season this year. Praise the Lord. I even went to the mall yesterday on my own volition. And I was there most of the day. And Mariko's like, Heath, are you, you really okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. Yeah, okay, you can laugh. It's because it's pathetic. Because if you know me, this is like, like Jake's the guy who wants to play the Christmas music in October. And I'm like, please, no. You see, this season, good or for ill, there is an anticipation, isn't there? There's this, this anticipation expressed in, in things like an advent calendar where you open up and you get the little chocolates. The, the rituals of acquiring and decorating a tree, uh, of decorating stockings, uh, even the, the whole ritual of how we do Christmas Eve and, and where we hang the stockings on the fireplace. There's an inexpressible, internal longing at Christmas. And as we get closer, as the anticipation builds, Side by side with this anticipation, we have this kind of undercurrent of behavioral and moral kind of expectations. I can't tell you how many times I've heard in my lifetime, Heath, please behave or you will get coal in your stocking. I can't tell you how many times I've actually got coal as a joke in my stocking. It's, we get it, right? There's this, this behavioral and moral expectation that we have that I struggle with. 
And this expectation, this moral code, I've dubbed, or is dubbed by our culture, as the spirit of Christmas. Now this time of year, baked into all of the twinkling lights, baked into all those Hallmark movies, which I'll probably reference it more than I should, all of the snowman cookies, all of the Santa hats, all of the fancy ornaments, there is this societal moral code that says, at Christmas, at Christmas we need to pause and what? Be generous. At Christmas, we need to be loving to those who we are estranged from. At Christmas, we need to be kind to the stranger on the street. Usually the guy that wants to grift us in August, we willingly give to at Christmas. At Christmas, we have this internal longing and need to give to the poor. Hear me clearly. Those things in and of themselves aren't bad things at all. In fact, we should be doing those things. The problem is not necessarily, you know, what we give or how we give it, or even how much we give. This thing, this problem, the, the, is the why underneath. Why? Why? What motivates our charity? Now, what I'm describing is a cultural practice that pauses us from our regularly scheduled programming of consumerism and self, and, and what it does is it, it guilts us into doing good, and we become empowered by the consumerism and self to do those good works. I was at the mall yesterday. This is very evident on full display. Now that COVID's over, it's, it's full on crazy. I also work on Vancouver's downtown east side and I see this every year. Coming up in the lead up towards Christmas, I get, I get inundated with people with emails and coming up and says, Heath, I wanna provide clothes, I wanna provide gloves and toques and hats and mitts for your friends on the downtown east side. How can I give? Now those are good things. But I think this, this undercurrent expresses itself in our actions, ranging from giving to charity, reconciling family differences. You know, we're like, suck it up, buttercup, and we'll have Uncle Bob over for Christmas. And it expresses ourselves in what we do and how we give to strangers. This spirit of Christmas, though, although having its origins in a faith story, is a secular code, a construct of human flourishing. It's a, it's a code of generosity. It's a code of kindness and charity towards others that is promoted, promoted by and enforced by none other than ourselves for our societal benefit. There's an article that I read this week in the Scientific American by Crystal DaCosta from a few years ago, and she describes it this way. With the growing secularization of the holiday season, the Christmas spirit is something we should all be able to relate to because it speaks to the social rights and the social obligations that we have to each other in order to maintain a civil society. I'm not just being a cynical Grinch here. This is a reality. Now this week, to my joy, I've had the immense pleasure of, of listening to an audiobook. It, it's a Christmas carol by Charles Dickens, but it was voiced over by, you know, none other than Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Starship Enterprise. And it was brilliant. So put it on your note. Go listen to A Christmas Carol. It's like the best hour and a half you will do here at Christmas. And it's amazing. And it tells, it's, I, come on, you got to love a Christmas ghost story, right? What struck me, what struck me listening to that this week, my epiphany, so to speak, was that Christmas, at Christmas time, we vilify and we condemn Mr. Scrooge for his Spartan ethics, for his stingy moral code. Yet functionally, we celebrate him the rest of the year and we live by his dodgy, selfish, miserly ideology. Poof. Christ City, this year, I want to be different. This year, I want to be different. Look, I'm even wearing a different colored shirt. 
I know, I have to say the obvious. I'm not wearing a black, I actually had a black shirt on this morning and I literally took it off and put this one on. Now, in all seriousness, our cultural, you know, spirit of Christmas is a once a year time where we absolve our collective guilt for living like Scrooge and we do so with a tax receipt in our hand. Now, I'm overstating the fact and speaking somewhat hyperbolically, but we'll get there. If you're not familiar with the Dickens story, it goes a little like this. Now, Mr. Scrooge, he's a, a cranky, a stingy, a greedy, a miserly businessman. There's a reason why, you know, in the last 150 years, we've got the term, oh, he was a Scrooge. This is why. He was a not a nice man. He is hated by everyone. And he's visited on a dark and gloomy Christmas Eve by none other than the ghost of his former co-worker, Jacob Marley. Now, Bar Marley comes in with a bandage around his head. I'll spare you the zombie details. And he's got chains, and he's dragging these chains. And he's got, like, cases full of, like, coins and everything. And he's dragging these chains. And he, and he comes to Scrooge. And he says, beware. These chains that I carry are the burdens that I have placed on people all of these years. And if you're not careful, you are going to carry the same chains. And in fact, because you've lived longer, you're going to have more than me. And so he promises Scrooge that he will be visited by three more ghosts that evening. The ghost of what? Christmas past? The ghost of Christmas present? And, and what else is it? The ghost of Christmas future. Yeah, the, the ghost of Christmas of yet to come. In these visita visitations, Scrooge, he experiences the, the sum total, and he views the sum total of human emotions. He's, he also sees his life. He sees his death. He sees, he sees past happiness, lost love, despair. He sees how his actions affect others, and he also see how, sees how he is viewed by others. Most alarming to him, though, is that he comes upon a man naked in death in a bed with none other than just a sheet. And he's haunted by that. He's like, who is this man? Who is this man? And, he, and, and, and this, this ghost takes him to a gravesite. And he's like, who is this person? Who is this person? He looks down and he sees the gravestone and he sees his name upon that gravestone. But it gets even worse. He realizes, he has another vision, where in his death, all that he acquired in his life, all that he worked for, everything, even his burial clothes, his bed vestments, you know, back in the days when you actually had to heat your bed with curtains around it, those have all been taken by thieves. All he had in and acquired in life sold to a pawn shop as he lay dead on his bed. Now, as the first rays of sunshine enter the room on Christmas morn, Scrooge wakes up, and he has a conversion of sorts. He wakes a changed man. We know the story, right? He, he walks joyfully. He is generous. He buys a big turkey. He's charitable. He's kind. He even sings Christmas carols. God, yes, gee, merry gentlemen. It was really great to hear Patrick Stewart read that. The story ends with Scrooge described as someone living the rest of his life Zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Scrooge does not become a once-a-year charitable donation kind of guy. Scrooge becomes a man, oh, zealous for good works. 
Charles Dickens here in his social narrative brings to flesh what Titus here in our text is, describes. This week I've had to grapple with this question, Christ City. What enables us? What transforms us? What transforms us into a people zealous for good works? Rather than our default setting of a social moral code. Christ City, what makes us a people zealous for good works? And so to answer this question, we have to look at a few things in our text. Primarily, it's, it's really difficult giving me the first Advent sermon out of the gate with four verses because I'll do my best to reserve some stuff back. So we're going to try and look at the bookends of our text in verse 11 and verse 14. But essentially, our threefold path here is the grace of God who appeared, the one who redeems, and lastly, a people zealous for good works. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says this. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, the four in this, right at the beginning of, our, of this verse 11, actually tells us, it's a, it's a cue marker, telling us that it's connected to what comes before. And so what Paul has done in this book to Titus, in the first 10 verses, what he's done is he's given what, what, what scholars call a household moral code. He is telling, essentially, what it is to live, to work, to be as a family in the Greco-Roman world. What does it mean to live? What does it mean to act? What does it mean to be a Christian family? Now, he gives instructions in this first 10 verses, you know, to older men, to younger men, to, 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 to older women, younger women, adolescent children, to, to household servants or slaves. Now, as if anticipating a little bit of a pushback, what Paul does is, like, he says, look, He's, he's anticipating, hey, how can I actually live this way? How can, if I live this way, Paul, I, I'll lose my street credibility. I can't do this. I can't, I can't be Scrooge. This costs me too much. I'll lose, I'll lose respect from my wife. My children won't love me anymore. How do I live this way in this society? So in verse 11, Paul, what he does, is he pauses the household code here for a second. And gives us a theological kind of picture of why he says these things. Christ City, I believe it's the same words that empower us today. Paul gives us the reason and the catalyst for our, our moral transformation, so to speak. Verse 11 says again, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared. Paul reminds them that the ghost of Christmas past, oh, wait a minute, no, that's a cheesy. I promise, I promise I, that's my one grandpa dad joke for the day. But I will also promise that I will not sing Santa Baby. Daniel's not even here to get that. The wonderful thing about this text is this word appeared. Now, it's a Greek word, epiphano. It's where we get our English word epiphany. There you go, now you're all Greek scholars. Paul reminds them of the appearance, the epiphany of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the historical events of one Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Paul reminds them of why we, what we celebrate here at Christmas, the birth of a baby, Jesus, in a manger. To live in the present to be a Christian, not to be Scrooge, is to live out of what has happened in the past. The grace of God has appeared. 
The grace of God was made manifest. The grace of God is revealed in Jesus, the one born in a barn, the one visited by shepherds and kings, the one who changes the fabric of reality, bringing salvation for all people. That's a pretty audacious claim. This Advent, disappearing is so pivotal in human history that all of heaven celebrates. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And one of those Christmas kind of things that we did, we had a, when I was a kid, we had a, you know, like a, a calendar. And every day, if I memorized a certain part of Luke 2, I got a candy. So, I won't, I'll spare you the, you know, the beginning, but we'll start at verse 8. And I'll read it because there's a different translation here. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, oh, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is, this is essentially Luke saying, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all mankind. And then in verse 12, it says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he's well pleased. All of heaven, all of creation breaks through the ethereal, um, you know, otherness of God and, and it comes through in worship. Christ city, oh, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. All of the cosmos celebrates. The shepherds go, they search for this baby, and they, and they find Jesus, and they, and they worship him, and they glorify God. Why? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. See, this appearing is so powerful that John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus for the first time, he declares in John chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We can live a life of faith, Christ City. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this is what Paul restates to Titus in our text. And I think the same is true here and now for us. To live in the present is to understand and be changed by this reality, what has already happened. The grace of God is Jesus, and in him there is salvation. We no longer are relegated to some bleak, dismal, burdensome existence of individual merit and striving and meritocracy. We don't have to walk around chained, enslaved in torment by past actions like Jacob Marley. No, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Christ City, the first step of being a people zealous for good works is to look back and acknowledge that the grace of God has appeared. Jesus has appeared. The light of Christmas morning has dispelled the fog, the darkness of our sin and brokenness. Jesus has appeared, and in him there is salvation for all mankind, all people. And this brings us to our second point, the one who redeems. Now, the first step is to recognize the grace of God has appeared, right? The second step is found in verses 13 and 14. Waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of 
our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Here we are told, not we're told to be waiting for a second appearance. It's a double kind of epiphany here. But this appearance isn't one of grace anymore, but it's actually one of glory, one of hope, one of full power. We are, we are waiting essentially for the ghost of Christmas future. Yeah, right. See, what has happened 2,000 years ago? That appearing, we actually have hope that he will come again and we can live in the present in between those two realities. The glory of, we can wait on the glory of God, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? Jacob will address this in further details in a couple weeks, but for our purposes this morning is this. We look back to the grace that has appeared. We live today in hope, empowered by the glory that will yet come. Jesus, in, in he will appear in glory and in power. We look back to the grace that has appeared and we live today empowered by that hope of a glory to come. So why is this important? Without this hope, without this hope of, of something actually outside of ourselves to come, to redeem, to save us, we are compelled by this moralistic spirit of Christmas, aren't we? We know something significant has happened. We, we know the appearance of grace means something, yet without this hope, without the impending glory of God, Christian living lacks power and real transformative change. Without this hope, we are no different than the old Mr. Scrooge. Recognizing that Christmas exists is different than being empowered by it. So how is this possible? Is this sort of some sort of hokey pokey, magical fairy dust Christmas spirit sort of thing, like a, a fat me giving out presents to good little boys and girls? No. We do receive a gift, yes. But it's not by me and my cheesy mustache. We receive something far, far greater. We receive something so significant that it costs everything. We receive the gift of hope through the grace that is wrought by, by God himself, accomplished through Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. The glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, is the same one in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All of us here this morning were like Jacob Marley, living half an existence, dragging our chains and weight in the junk, all of the burdens that we've shackled to ourselves and other people have shackled to us. And every Christmas, we have the opportunity of clarity here. At Christmas, we can see for but a moment our real selves. We can look in the mirror. And, and sadly, though, when we, when, we, when we see ourselves in this mirror, we can actually recognize the apparition for what it is. Unfortunately, we try to absolve this guilt. We try to put masks on. And, we, and through a limited giving and good works campaign, we absolve our guilt. And we preserve our disguise, numbing our integrity and our guilt for yet another year. Christ City, the great news of Christmas is that the grace of God has appeared to break the cycle of bondage. And this is done by the one who gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, Jesus Christ, our great Savior and God. 
Every Christmas, we are at a crossroads. Every Christmas, we are at a crossroads. The Advent brings us to this crossroads. The ghost of Christmas yet to come is here right now. And we are when we're ushered into the cemetery, Christ City, and we're forced to look upon the gravestone, whose name is there? Whose name is there? Whose name is there? Is it Ebenezer Scrooge? Or is it the one who redeems? Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. The grace of God has appeared. He is the one who redeems. Jesus dies the death that our burdens and our bondage, our chains and the sin demand. And in him, we have the opportunity to receive a life made new, to be freed, to be unshackled from everything that drags us down. Do we receive this opportunity this morning or do we walk away? Like Scrooge, we have an opportunity right now. Whose name is on the grave, Christ City? Is it yours? Is it mine? Or is it Jesus? The one who redeems. Christ City, to be a people zealous for good works, one must look back and acknowledge that the grace of God has appeared. Jesus has appeared. But also to be a people zealous for good works, we must be redeemed by him. We must in him, to, to be redeemed by him is to have your death, his death, and to have his life, your life. As we transition to our third point, it's helpful to remember. Now, many think that, that culturally speaking, our culture will say to you, what Scrooge was changed by was his good works. Little by little, little by little. Jake wanted me to watch, there's this movie on Apple Plus called Spirited. I watched the trailer and I act to confess I vomited in my mouth a little bit. So I didn't waste the two hours, but what it says is, is we could change our life little by little just by doing one little good thing. Just try, just try. Fake it till you make it. No, that's not how it works. The truth is, is that Scrooge's change, his good works were a byproduct of his changed heart, not because he did those good works. The grace of God who appeared is the one who frees us, the one who redeems us and reorients how we engage those around us. That brings us to our third point, a people zealous for good works. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, Heath, I get it. I know that Jesus' name is the one that's supposed to be on the gravestone. Clever story, yeah, but not that clever. But I'm still motivated by guilt and by shame. What do I do with that? What do I do with that, Heath? There is no glorious ray of sunshine that entered my room this morning. In fact, I had seven kids jump on me and there's some, one of them's throwing up over here. You know, tell me how that works, Heath. I didn't wake up this morning 100% different like Scrooge, so what's up? I struggle every day doing good works. How do I be zealous? How are we to be zealous by good works? Let's look at verse, verse 14 again. It is Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul tells his readers, they're probably struggling with the same question. He tells his readers this, the grace of God who appears, this is Jesus. He's our great God and Savior. He is the one in which we hope. He is the one who redeems us, but also... He's the one who purifies us as a people. He changes us. So what does it mean to be purified or clean, as this text says? 
Now let's look at verse 12. Now Jake will deal with this next week, so I won't steal too much from him. But this is why the great thing about going first. The grace of God appeared, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, being redeemed by Jesus breaks the power of our moralistic spirit of, of Christmas self, you know, salvation story. But being purified by Jesus, oh, being purified by Jesus expunges that behavior and the compulsive behaviors that we have to turn back. Jesus cleans our lives one day at a time. Now, I'm a bit of a klutz. I don't know, a couple weeks ago, I was like five in the morning. I got up early. I wanted to do some study and some reading. And you know, usually I make a pot of coffee so that Marie can enjoy it later. But this morning, I decided to do a pour over. I got my coffee pot, or I got my coffee cup. I got the pour over thingy. I've got like old school. It's like a red plastic thing with the thing in there. And I scoop in the coffee. I'm literally half asleep. Boil the kettle, and I'm just, you know, you know, doing your, your magic on there. And something happened, and I turned around, and I knocked the full thing of coffee and grounds. It exploded everywhere. Burnt my hand, burnt my leg, burnt my foot. And there's like coffee sludge tar everywhere. It looks like, looks like a grenade blew up, like, grounds all over the coffee. And I'm like, oh, boy. So what do I do in my half-asleep zombie brain? Mariko just put out a brand new, freshly clean, brand new tea towel. So I grab this sucker, and it's white, like Starker's white. And I'm scrubbing it off, and I'm squeegeeing it out. And as I'm cleaning, the grounds are becoming less and less of an issue on the countertop, the stove, the side, the cupboard, the ceiling, and the floor. And this white tea towel is now brown full of grounds, and I've got to like scrape it off into the garbage. Sorry, recycling. <laughs> I live on the downtown east side. If I were recycling out, it gets burned. So, you know, I have to contextualize that. See, the only thing, I, I thought I cleaned up pretty well. In fact, Mariko didn't even notice first thing, which is amazing in and of itself. But all that was left to mark the deed was the filthy rag. Was the filthy rag. That's what it means to be purified. The process of purification or being made clean trains us to renounce ungodliness. In other words, over time, we renounce all the ways in which we try to absolve our guilt and save ourselves. To be purified is to be trained on how to live lives free from being, you know, a compulsive drive to worldly behaviors. It's step by step, but it's, it's transformative. I can actually have Jesus' power to deal with addictive and destructive behaviors that I deal with every day. I'm not being hyperbolic. I am cleaned. I am made new. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago, Christ City, because more coffee grounds are on Jesus now than on me. That's what it means to be purified. To be purified is to, is to have all of the mess of the coffee and the sludge cleaned out of our lives, and that takes time. Paul has confidence here. Because start to finish, the work is accomplished by God in the lives of Christians through Jesus. Jesus is the white cloth that becomes a filthy rag. Paul's readers and us this morning can be zealous for good works. Why? Because Jesus appeared. Why? Because Jesus redeems. Why? Because Jesus saves us. Why? Because Jesus also trains and purifies us. 
In him, we can be a people zealous for good works. We do not need to be further enslaved by moralistic code that we call the spirit of Christmas. Rather, we can be free to celebrating what Jesus has done in his appearing. We can be, you can have an epiphany just like me and actually be happy about this coming season. I think Charles Dickens is right here. The real miracle of Christmas, dare I say the real spirit of Christmas, is not in giving and receiving of gifts. It's not doing good. It's not charity. It's not works of service. But rather, the real miracle of Christmas is that God changes lives just like Scrooge. Just like Scrooge and just like me. When the light of Christmas morn appears, Christ city, when the darkness is dispelled, when the grace of God appears, how do you respond? Are you like Scrooge? A person changed by Jesus, zealous for good works, or you, Jacob Marley, once again, looking in the mirror, turning back, enslaved by your burdens. So, Christ, today I leave you with one question. Whose name is on the grave? Whose name is on the grave? Let's pray. God, I recognize that this is not the most happy, clappy, joyful of all Advent sermons. But Lord, we thank you that you are oh, the grace of God that appeared to dispel all darkness. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who trains us in righteousness. You are the one who purifies us. You are the one who redeems us. And you are the one in which we hope that we'll come again and, and make everything right. So Lord, in that, we, we humbly give to you what we have. Not because, not because it's the right thing to do, because our society says so, but because you have changed us so resolutely that we want to give everything back. So in this we pray. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.